0: The biggest thing is that you're listening to your body, Um, and this is something that I feel like becomes, it's an interesting conversation because when people are newer, the signals that they're getting are constantly like, I'm sore, there's no way I'm going to be Welcome back to the show. As the podcast approaches the completion of its first year, I wanted to give all of the listeners an update. I've had so much fun researching and interviewing over 40 plus guests over this past year. When I started the podcast, I had just found out that my wife was pregnant and I was eager to get this podcast established and off the ground before I had to go into full dad mode. As I'm sure you have heard on the show, my daughter was born in late March, and I have officially entered into the world of fatherhood. I created this podcast with the goal of increasing the standard of fitness, nutrition, and life for our guests by exposing them to what I believe are some of the best thought leaders that I have access to. I can say that I was humbly surprised that many of our guests were willing to let me steal an hour of their time, and I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've had up to this point. What I have realized over the last month is that the process of vetting, researching, and preparing for guests and lining up schedules is challenging. And while I'm always up for a challenge, my main priorities at this time are my family and showing up as a leader in both of my businesses. With that said, the podcast is something that I absolutely love doing because I know that my curiosity provides many useful solutions and answers for our guests, I have decided that I will continue to publish episodes, but we'll be shifting to more of an in-house episode type feel with my team at Hardbat, and we'll bring guests on once or twice a month. I'm confident that this decision will be for the benefit of my team, as well as to the benefit of our listeners, as we will be able to answer questions more directly from the audience and still gain the insight from outside guests on a regular basis. I cannot tell you how much it means to me that you all have chosen to listen to our episodes. And I promise to keep finding ways to provide value to each and every one of you. Now, on to the show. On today's episode, I asked ChatGPT for the 10 most common fitness questions, and I answered them completely off the cuff. I could have built out bullet points and notes, but I wanted to provide answers that were practical and conversational, as though you would just ask me the questions on the spot. I believe I did a good job at giving you all some solid solutions, but as always, I will let you be the judge. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, real quick before we dive into the episode, you probably heard about this podcast directly from someone else or saw it shared on social media. We can only grow, spread our message further, and keep bringing in awesome and amazing guests with your help. If you could take five seconds and hop on whatever podcast platform you're using and leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. On to the show. What's up, guys? Today, I am going to be attacking the 10 most common questions that ChatGPT could find on the internet that people asked about their health and fitness, and many of them are going to be generic, and I will be upfront that I purposefully did not prepare for these. So I did look at them, but I didn't take the time to go through and make notes like I normally would for a typical podcast. And I did this for a couple of reasons. I'm kind of as interested as you are to see what my responses to some of these might be off the cuff. And I think that the broadness and generality to some of these questions will allow me to kind of go down some interesting rabbit holes. So I'm fascinated at where we'll go with this. Um, These questions are ones that if they're the most common on the internet, I probably see them quite often in my own facility and experiences with clients. What I will say is that the more educated you get with a client, the more specific and defined their questions become. Uh, So I feel that people that have been in the fitness game for a long time and have been an enthusiast or potentially an athlete for five to ten or more years are probably asking better questions than the ones that are on here. So I will do my best to not just provide generic answers, but go a little bit deeper into my reasoning behind some of my answers. All right, we're going to dive right in. There's no need to keep you here longer than we need. All right, so the first question, ChatGPT said, After browsing the internet, here are the 10 most common questions about fitness. Number one, how often should I exercise? My first instinct here is to tell people that anything off of baseline is a positive. And this is probably gonna come up a number of times. And what I mean by that is we'll get into frequency and what might be optimal in the long term depending on variables like your age, training age, meaning how long you've been working out, what your goals are, current life circumstances and those sort of things. And as I always mention, there is seasonality to life. So there might be times in your life where you're in a position to be able to thrive, work isn't being overwhelming, you don't have little kids running around the house, um, there's no extrinsic factors in your life that might be preventing you from spending extra time at the gym, in which case the frequency can increase. And then there's going to be times where even for a veteran, they have to dial back their time at the gym and start to consolidate and be a bit more focused around the basics with their training in order to maintain through a certain season of their life. So there's always that big asterisk or, um, or caveat here. But uh, for the general person, in terms of how often you should exercise, I find that a good rule of thumb is at minimum two to three days a week to start. And the reason for this is that the body goes through adaptation and recovery at a rate that two to three days a week would allow you to recover from your exercise, adapt from it, and then contribute back towards whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish without allowing for this perpetual cycle of Train immense soreness, train immense soreness. In other words, the body will start to actually adapt to being under some sort of stimulus inside of a gym by working out at least two to three times a week. So in the past, we have had clients that have started with us and they start out at one times a week, one time a week. and it's not just a matter of the results not coming nearly as quickly. Um, and in some cases, not at all, depending on what it is you're doing during that one session and then what they're doing in the, the six other days that they're not there, but it has more to do with how it makes them feel and the motivation to want to go back to work out. So in other words, if you work out really hard for a day, obviously relative to your current ability level, and then you take six days off, you're going to be really sore for a couple of days. You're going to recover and then you're going to have a few days in limbo, and then you're going to go back and hit another session. And it's not to say that you can't, it's impossible to see progress this way. You absolutely could do some really, really intensive strength work and recover for an entire week and see some progress. But more times than not, the individual that's trying to work out one time a week is coming off of working out zero times a week. And is likely doing this because of some other lifestyle factors going on and and constraints that are preventing them from doing more days at that given moment. Um, So I feel like the best thing that you could do in that case or what I would do for a client is start to find workarounds of ways that they could sneak in workouts throughout the week. So maybe they do only get one hour session per week. But we could find two or three other days where they might be able to sneak in 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 45 minutes as a way to start to help build this adaptation so that this person's not in this cyclical experience of I work out. It's miserable because I'm not used to it. I'm sore for multiple days. I recover and then I go back into it and I'm miserable all over again. So I find that you start getting into that realm of two to three days. That's where you start to feel the momentum building uh, as far as your comfort levels with your training. Now, it can always go in excess to that. And I would say that for most fitness enthusiasts, it probably does. And we can talk about, I know there's going to be other questions that get into the what and the how, and we can talk about the split between cardio and strength and those sort of things. But just in terms of the amount of sessions that you're doing, um, I would recommend at least two to three, at least two to three. What time of day is best to work out? This is question number two. I think every person has a different answer to this. Um, there are times that are best for men and women based on hormones and how they're released throughout the day, um and where people find themselves most alert. But there's obviously a lot of variables to that. You know, how much sleep, in other words, like if 1pm if is, is ideal, it's like, okay, well, is that based on someone getting up at seven? What about if they get up at five? What if they got up at seven, but they got five hours of sleep? So you see what I'm getting at here. There's a lot of variables. And I think there's this, there's a always optimization, and then there's practicality. So my recommendation from a practical side of things, which is generally what I'm gonna to lean towards, unless you're trying to be a high level athlete um, or you know figure competitor, is to find what is practical. Because what is practical is also gonna to lead to the greatest level of adherence. So when it comes to time of day, some people have a greater affinity for working out in the morning, other people have a greater affinity for working out in the afternoon. But what's probably most important is that you're taking into consideration when you feel best and when you can get the workout in most consistently. So I know a lot of new parents that definitely don't want to have to get up at 5 5 a.m. to get to the gym by 6 a.m. to get their workout in. But they know that if they get that in, that when they pick the kids up, depending on what mood they're in, the homework that they bring home, the things they got to get done around the house or anything else that's likely to pop up at random they don't have to worry about or stress about the fact that they haven't trained yet because they got it in first thing in the morning. So while that may not be ideal in terms of their ability to perform in the morning, they haven't eaten as much food, their ability to feel like working out on a regular basis. um, They know that it's, it's done now that takes a great degree of discipline because as I mentioned, a part of this is the adherence. It's like wanting to work out at certain times. So, even if you are the type of person that likes to work out in the afternoon, if your only opportunity is in the morning, that's when you should get it done. Now, when it comes to optimization, the things that I say will say is, are, are kind of paramount are listening to your body's signals about when you want to work out. If you're not getting enough sleep, you're probably not getting an accurate answer from your body about when it wants to train because the reality is you probably never want to train if you're, if you're really deficient in sleep. Food intake plays a very big role. I am not a big fan of having people train fasted, especially when it comes to higher intensity types of workouts or strength training. If you're doing light cardio in the morning, light being zone two, which is that 65 to 75% of maximum heart rate, something where you could have a conversation, that's something that I could see doing fasted or doing it before you eat. But generally, what I find is that the wakefulness that people get and the alertness necessary to be able to train often comes by two pathways. Number one is being awake for a certain amount of time. So when you first get up in the morning and you're feeling groggy and it takes you a little bit to kind of come to, you know, this is the whole like, don't talk to me before I have my coffee. Sometimes it's actually just time, right? It's like when you first get up in the morning, the last thing you want to do is have to go through a bunch of mental processing. So part of it is that. And then the other part of it is is how much food you've consumed and what you've consumed. So if you've gotten quality sources of lean protein, quality sources of carbohydrates, and high quality fats early on in the day, it's very likely that you're going to have more energy at a certain point in your day, right? So there's obviously a lot of factors here, um, but if I had to wrap this all up, I would say Find the time of day that is ideal for you to train based on how you feel and find a time in the day that you can train that fits your current lifestyle that you can adhere to. Those two things are not always going to be in alignment, but when they are, it's awesome. When it's not, it's going to require discipline, and that's where finding the right group of people to hang around is really going to be able to be the support system that you need. Numero trace, number three. How long should my workouts be? I think this is entirely contextual as to what it is your goals are and what it is that you're trying to accomplish and the types of exercises that you're doing. My general rule of thumb is you're going to want to do somewhere in the ballpark of two to three hours of strength training per week. All right. Now, This isn't going to be optimal for somebody that's looking to be a strength-based athlete or someone that's trying to pack on a bunch of muscle, but for the average person, this is going to be enough to change your aesthetic, receive the benefits in terms of stability and muscle strength uh, by consistently training two to three hours a week. And if you spread this out, it could be four sessions of 45 minutes, it could be three sessions of an hour, you can really decide what makes the most sense for you. Um, There's a lot of debate that is to be had about the benefit of frequency, meaning how many times a week you're training in comparison to uh, sets and reps and whether it's best to divide those higher intense days or make them more compact and try to fit more into one. Generally speaking, if you're someone that is just getting started to training, I would recommend that you increase frequency and decrease the total volume that you're doing in a given session. Um, Most people peak out at about an hour in, in terms of things like energy and testosterone. So it's not to say that you won't receive benefits beyond an hour. It's just that they will start to become diminishing for the average person. Now, it doesn't mean that this is true for everyone. As you become more athletic and as your body adapts to exercise, you can absolutely create adaptation that will allow you to train at higher intensities beyond an hour. But again, this is not something that's going to happen immediately. It might take a couple years. Um, So in terms of how long your workouts should be, I would say they shouldn't necessarily be any shorter than 20 or 30 minutes if you're trying to do something that involves higher intensity strength, just because of the amount of time it's going to take you to warm up. If you're doing something that's more circuit based, higher rep, body weight, lighter weights, and those sort of things, you can get away with shorter time durations because it's not going to require the same degree of a warm up, And you can actually just kind of warm up as you build into your sets. Number four, do I need to warm up before my workouts? The answer is 1000% yes. Now, as I mentioned as part of the last question, it's going to be highly dependent on what it is that you're doing. Generally speaking, I always say that the higher intensity of the training, be that by the way of super hard, intense cardiovascular output where you're getting closer to your maximum heart rate, speed, meaning you're going to be working at higher velocities, sprints, or we'll say like... Uh, aggressive rowing intervals, high intensity interval training, and those sort of things, or intensity in the strength realm where we're starting to talk about getting closer to your one rep max in terms of intensity or operating above 75% or more of your maximum uh, capacity in that given area. So let's say you're doing back squats. If you're going to be doing squats above that 75 to 80% range, you're talking about a greater need for a warm up, And the reason for this is that you're warming up a few things. You're conditioning your body in order to be able to prepare for exercise by the way of preparing your connective tissue and your ligaments and tendons, as well as warming up your muscles. But probably even more importantly than that is that you are waking up what's called your central nervous system, which without getting too deep into the weeds, your central nervous system is what, communicates with your muscles in order to be able to recruit muscle fibers to be able to produce force. And it the higher intensity that you intend on operating at, the more that you need to ramp up to that. So for instance, if you're if you're just doing something that's lower intensity, you can warm up with like a light bike and then jump right into it. You can't go from a light bike to 85% of your back squat. So it's going to take more of a concerted effort to get to that level. Now, in terms of my recommendations for a warm-up, in ter- if I would need it to structure it for an average client, generally what I recommend is spending somewhere uh, around 5 to 10 minutes on any machine just to kind of get the blood flowing, um, get your mindset in the right place. Uh, I do find that we call them kind of hot starts in our gym, but getting yourself where the blood's pumping, your heart rate's up, and you're sweating a little bit is a really good way to kind of initiate yourself into the workout. If not just for the physical benefit, there's the mental benefit as well. In other words, if you don't warm up properly for a workout and you're not sweating, I find that it's harder to kind of mentally connect to what it is that you're doing. And you lose a bit of focus because there's always this little bit of you that's like, I really don't feel like doing this. Whereas if you're sweating, blood pumping, heart rate got up, it's now come back down a little bit and you're in a place where, okay, like I'm sweaty. I'm, I've warmed up. I've gotten through something that was like moderately hard in terms of like prepping my body for exercise. It's much easier to buy into what it is that you're about to do and get focused on the task at hand. So I always start with some sort of monostructural hop on a machine and move. The second piece to this is that you want to identify what it is that you're doing for the day. So if you're doing squats, you know you need to do some lower body warm-up. If you're doing pressing, you got to do some upper body uh, warm-up. If you're doing some whole body type of exercises for the day, You're going to want to do a whole body warm up. So you need to identify uh, from a specificity standpoint what it is that you're looking to do for the day. And then from there, you can kind of build out your warm up. I typically tell people that the warm up should take somewhere in the realm of 10 to 20 minutes at most. 10 minutes if you're warming up for something lower intensity, 20 minutes probably if you're warming up for something higher intensity. So, from a generalization standpoint as we start to get into the actual movements, you're going to pick things again that are going to warm up the body parts that you're looking to prep for exercise. I always am going to recommend dynamic style warm-ups rather than isometric or stretching-based warm-ups. What I mean by that is holding positions that are active can be helpful. Um Holding positions that are passive are probably not best for, for warm-up. What I mean by that is doing things like static holds for hamstring stretches prior to training doesn't make a lot of sense because that isn't going to mimic, right, or prepare the tissue in a way that is going to set it up for success for activation and contraction for exercise. So dynamic warm-ups generally mean that you are moving through space as you go about them. I will list off some exercises and some of them may be familiar to you and I'll try to give a brief description, some may not. So leg swings are where you might hold on to an implement and keep your legs straight. One leg's on the ground, one leg is swinging and you're swinging it forward and backward. You start kind of small, you'll get a stretch through the hamstring as you kick up, you'll get a stretch through the hip flexor as you kick back and you can increase the intensity and the height of the swing as your body begins to warm up. Great exercise for lower body warm up. Groiners, when you're in a push-up plank, it's bringing one foot up around uh, the side of your hand where you'll get a stretch out of your groin, stretch out of the high hamstrings, stretch out of the adductors, um, and you can kind of open up the hips a little bit. Great warm-up for squatting. Um, Doing things like running through some squats, like basic air squats, and you can play around with If you raise the heels, it'll warm up the quads a little bit more. If you sit to a box that's behind you, it'll warm up the hips a little bit more. Um, Bend heel reach, so reaching down, touching in between your heels, and then reaching up towards the ceiling. We do these quite often. They're a great way to kind of open up the hinge pattern in the hips, open up the hamstrings, um, the hips, the back, and um, are really good for preparing for anything where you're gonna be pulling from the floor. When it comes to upper body, uh, things like push-up plank holds, push-up plank shoulder taps. Um, I know the first one was an isometric, but I do like that for preparing the shoulders. Um, doing things like arm swing side to side, arm swings up and down. Um, you can do light versions of dumbbell bench or whatever it is that you're going to be doing from pressing uh, for pressing that day. Um elbow circles, wrist circles, again, things that are dynamic in nature and warm the tissue up by the way of moving. Um, you get the double benefit of continuing through movement and getting your heart rate up and also getting the muscles activated that you want to use for that particular workout. Now, in extension to this, if you have anything that is a known problem for you, so for instance, if you are somebody that has tight calves and you're going to be squatting, That's where it can make sense to try to hold positions that lengthen that tissue. Now, generally I wanna coincide that with something that's active. So for instance, if I'm doing a calf stretch, which I mentioned probably in isolation isn't the best thing to do before exercise, it can work well if it is paired with something that puts you in that range of motion actively. So a good example of this would be doing a calf stretch and then mixing it with a calf raise, like a deep calf raise. If you're, let's say you put your toes on a a thick 45 plate or a box or a slant board if you have one, and taking yourself through full range in addition to stretching that tissue. This is where we can actually create a bit of physiological change, at least in the short term, to allow you to enter into that range of motion comfortably once you're involved with your exercise. Um, Warm-ups are equally as important As the workout, when it comes to the qualitative aspect of things. So, for instance, if you fail to warm up before doing something that's whether it be low or even high intensity, and you are in suboptimal positions. So, the I'll use the example that I just gave, such as squatting. If you don't open up your ankles, and you know that. you're missing dorsiflexion or the ability to pull your toes towards your shin, which is what happens essentially when you go into a squat, right? That dorsiflexion is what allows uh, your knees and hips and the rest of your body to be in place and then the, the the weight to be properly supported over top of the midfoot. If you are deficient in that range of motion and you have a bunch of squatting, you're putting yourself in suboptimal positions. And generally what this does is over time you're asking uh, your joints and muscles to perform functions that they are not designed to perform. So you get a lot of compensation, imbalances, and those sort of things. And this is where you can finish a workout and you're like, oh, I had a bunch of squats and my knee is pissed off. It doesn't feel good. There are a lot of reasons that can happen, but this is one of the reasons, which is you are not properly warming up to be able to get into the ranges of motion pain-free that you need to be able to access in order to be able to have a high-quality workout. Cool, I think I crushed that one. (laughs) You guys can tell me. Um, How much cardio should I be doing? Okay, so cardio is on a continuum, right, or a spectrum. So you have, we'll say there's five zones. There is a such thing as zone six, zone seven, but it's not necessary for for this conversation. So zone one through five are basically uh, a way to, to demonstrate or to break up the increase in heart rate and respiratory rate as you progress into your cardiovascular zones. So for instance, zone one is how I am right now. There is... Nothing stimulus wise that is causing me to elevate my heart rate, increase respiratory rate. I can have full conversations um i'm not sweating um even though it was very easy to do so earlier it 's like ninety five degrees outside, but even in that case um, even in that case, I am in zone one right now, right, so when you go to work when you're driving in your car, when you 're sitting around home and you're like eating food around the table this is operating in what we would call zone 1, all right? Zone 2 is where we get into for some people it's walking. So for people that are out of shape or haven't had a lot of experience with exercise, they may actually be able to enter into zone 2 just by going for a brisk walk. For people that are have some training background, typically it takes more than a walk and it would require some light form of cardiovascular exercise generally going to be performed on some sort of machine. So a bike, a rower, a skier, something along those lines. Um, It is going to be at a pace where from a subjective perspective, you can have a full conversation with somebody else. So if you're doing zone two, you shouldn't have any restriction on your ability to formulate full sentences and operate within a conversation. Now, it doesn't mean that this is something that you just desire to do. So, in other words, being in zone two and the ability to talk does not mean that you want to talk. So, you might feel like, okay, this is kind of annoying. I don't feel like talking right now, but I have the capacity to do it. That is a good indicator, subjectively speaking, of zone two. Now, from a heart rate perspective, people that um, are more in shape are going to be able to... Exist within zone two at a higher heart rate, and people that are a little more out of shape are going to exist uh, with their in that in that zone two with their heart rate at a lower rate um, because it has to do um, with lactic acid. And we're not going to get into all or, or I'm sorry, lactate. We're not going to get into all of that right now. But the best thing that you can do if you're not going to wear a heart rate monitor is to go by the subjective feeling if if you're if you're able to talk. If you do have a heart rate monitor. Um, for most people, it's going to fall into the 65 to 75% range, 65 to 75%. Um, when it comes to how often or how much you should be doing of zone two, for the purposes of longevity, cardiovascular health, um, cognitive health, right? <laughs> There's a lot of benefits to it. Um, you're going to want to aim for somewhere between 150, and 300 minutes a week. Now, obviously when we look back at how often I recommend someone trains, someone that's just working out or just starting out with their their training isn't going to just completely do zone 2 for all of their training. Are there benefits? Sure. Do I think that those benefits outweigh the benefits of them reducing the the zone 2 output to incorporate things like strength training? Absolutely not. You're going to want both. So Luckily for that individual, they may be able to get to zone two by the way of walking. So if they're doing strength training as part of those two to three or four sessions a week of thirty, let's say twenty to sixty minutes, and then they want to start to incorporate more cardiovascular uh, fitness, they can incorporate it via walking. Um, if they are if they surpass that where the the walking can't get them into that proper range that's where they would need to do some form of uh, monostructural cardiovascular fitness to kind of elevate their heart rate enough to be able to enter into zone two. Ideally, again, 150 minutes uh, to 300 minutes a week. Now, one of the things I will say is a struggle point for many people in this area is that zone two cardio tends to be on the boring side. So I will tell you ways that I find... um, ways that I have found to to make it less boring and more manageable. The first is don't operate on one piece of machinery. Now, if you love rowing, right, or you love biking, sure, you can just stick with a you can stick with a a single modality throughout the entire let's say 45-minute session. But for many people, th- this is just too boring. So, what I would recommend doing is just going setting up a circuit of machines. Now, the thing you have to be careful with is the amount of downtime between machines because you don't wanna go below that zone two, um, but also this tendency to sprint. So I sometimes find, and even this is even true in myself, that if I'm going from one machine to the next, because they generally are going to tax muscle groups or you know regions of muscle groups differently, that I feel fresh. So for instance, if I'm sitting on a rower and I'm doing 45 minutes, Something that allows me to stay in zone two is the fact that I'm using the same muscle groups over and over again. So it becomes harder to, to want to sprint past that, right, and find myself in zone three, zone four because the same muscle groups are starting to get fatigued as I go. Um, now, the fatigue onset should be very slow. If you ever are – this is another indicator that you're in zone two. If you're ever doing zone two work and you feel like the limiting factor is – your musculature right where you're getting like this like local burning effect or just overly fatiguing to the point where you can't go hold that pace anymore. You're not in zone two. You've, you've elevated past that. Um, or your technique is bad enough on that piece of machinery to where you are operating, um, your, your biomechanics are what is your limiting factor. So in other words, like your ability to be efficient, your efficiency is starting to, to tank. Um, so you do want to choose modalities for doing zone two that you feel comfortable with. For most people, and if you noticed, I haven't mentioned running. And that's because for the average person, as you slow down running and your stride and gait really starts to reduce, most people's running mechanics weren't great to begin with and fall apart even more as they reduce speed. And now it starts becoming a battle of local stamina or local muscular endurance rather than the ability to stay in zone two long term, which is another benefit of changing machines. But the risk of changing machines, as I mentioned, is that sometimes you get this like refreshed feeling of like, okay, I was on the rower, kind of kind of tired of this, like drive with the legs, pull with the arms. And now you're on a ski and you're like wow, different musculature. I feel fresh. And people start picking up. But if you were to look at their heart rate monitor, they're exceeding into that zone three. They get off the machine, they drop back down into zone two, and so on and so forth. Now, beyond zone two. So it it's not a negative to exist in zone three. It's not a negative to exist in zone four or five. There's a time and a place for it, and it needs to be structured that way. So I would recommend that about 80% of your cardio is done in zone two, and that exists in that three, four, and five range, right? There's a few ways that you can attack this. One way is going to be through high-intensity interval training. Now, when you're doing high-intensity interval training, it needs to be done at an intensity that is sustainable for the duration that you're performing it, right, given the rest and intervals. So, for instance, if I'm doing minute-on, minute-off, I'm going to select a pace uh, on the machine that I'm working on that is hard but sustainable for the given minute, and then with a minute recovery is sustainable once again. It doesn't mean that there's never a time and place where it's appropriate to exceed this and push the the bounds and limits of what you're capable of, but we start entering into different energy systems. So for the sake of keeping this aerobic-based, you're going to want to do something that's sustainable, all right? Um, you can do this by the way of doing things like four minutes on, four minutes off. You could do it by going minute on, minute off, 30, 30 on, 30 off. You can break it up however you want. And then this way you can have fun with playing with different, uh, playing with different strategies around how to enter into these higher intensity cardiovascular, um, zones. So, Zone 3 generally from a subjective standpoint I tell people is where you are feeling your heart rate and respiratory rate elevating um your heavy breathing but it's under control. So in other words you're not having the like bad mental conversations with yourself at this point. Like zone 3 is still comfortable enough to where you feel like you're in control over your body. As you start to enter into zone four and zone five, this is where we start creeping closer and closer into the realm of getting close to your maximum heart rate. And here is where sustainability doesn't last very long. Um, Obviously, this differs as you start talking about higher level athletics. But for the average person, zone four and zone five are where this is the beginning to the end. If you were to continue at the same output that you were at originally. Um, Another way that you can play with this is to where, whether you're staying with one machine or multiple, you can do what's called tempo work. So you can go to zone four, zone five, drop to zone two. Zone four, zone five, drop to zone two, and you can determine how you want to set up your intervals in terms of time on and time off, so time on being working up to that higher intensity aerobic capacity zone, and then lowering for a certain amount of time to a lower aerobic capacity zone. So there's a lot of different ways that you could play with this, but generally speaking, I do recommend 150 to 300 minutes a week of cardiovascular exercise. And as mentioned, if you're first starting out, you can include walking in that number. All right. Uh, Number six, how often should I rest? Kind of similar to the first question of how often should I exercise? It's going to be highly dependent on what it is you're doing for your training, um, what your current goals are and how your body is probably the most important one, how your body is responding to exercise. CrossFit did a really good job with creating a three on one off type of structure. Um, I know main site still operates with three on one off. Last time I checked what most gyms that I have found on the CrossFit side have chosen to do just for the, for the, the sake of trying to keep it on a week cycle is they do go three on one off, two on one off. Now, does this mean that it's impossible to work out seven days a week? No, it does not. Um, it, It does require a degree of adaptation. Uh, to where your body is used to moving at that frequency. And and it also requires a level of knowledge to be able to decide how to include things like active recovery and days where maybe the only thing that you do is walk and then some light stretching and mobility. So it depends how you define what a workout is. Um, For most people, I would say that you don't want to do more than three days of hard training in a row without including a a day four as a recovery day. Um, But if your intensity is lower, um, be that intentional or just by the circumstances of what you've had time to do or the energy to be able to pull off, you could do more days than that. The thing to remember is that it's always going to be based on your baseline. So, People that are just starting out are, this is interesting because while they're not going to be able to perform at a higher intensity in context to like what's possible for them eventually, it's relative to their current ability level. So what I mean by that is, yeah, sure, like their central nervous system may not allow them to squat a bunch of weight. But if their legs are experiencing external load for the first time, even doing three sets of six of a front or a back squat at a relatively low weight can cause a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness in that individual. So the how often you rest is going to be highly determined by the types of exercises you're doing, the intensity you're doing them at, um, and then how long your body has become accustomed to this. So what I would do if you're newer is start with either a two-on-one-off or three-on-one-off type of structure. You can also go one-on-one-off as well, right? So in other words, if you don't care so much as to what days you train and what days you don't, you can go train, don't train, train, don't train. That's totally fine too because from a percentage standpoint, you're still working out, you know, we would average out to what, three and a half days a week, which again kind of fits our target that we mentioned earlier. The biggest thing is that you're listening to your body. Um, And this is something that I feel like becomes, it's an interesting conversation because when people are newer, the signals that they're getting are constantly like, I'm sore. There's no way I'm going to be able to work out, which as people get more involved in in training, they start to learn working out in the presence of soreness actually makes it better more often than not. The question is, what types of exercise should you be doing depending on how sore you are? So... You want to be careful not to stack too many like days, meaning you don't want to have heavy squats, heavy squats, heavy squats, rest. Um, But if you were to be able to do some sort of split where you have heavier squats Monday, some sort of heavier press Tuesday, rest Wednesday, doing some sort of like lower uh, intensity, lighter weight, lower body exercise on Thursday, and then lighter weight, lower intensity, higher rep, upper body exercise on Friday. In this way, you're having this varying degree of intensity that you can play with despite the fact that you're targeting those same muscle groups within the same given week. And then as the body adapts, that intensity and the ability to recover in a shorter time duration will start to improve. Um, So somebody that Like I've had athletes that squat six days a week, but it's something that they had to build into. And in some of those cases, it took them years to get to that point. Um, And then we just modulate or vary the intensity of those squat days. So much of this is going to be based on your body's ability to recover and adapt to the stimulus and exercise that you were exposed to. Um, And a coach will go a long way in helping you out with this. I know there was a lot to unpack there, but hopefully I did okay. Um, should I stretch before or after my workout? So again, defining of words here is going to be important. Um, if we're talking about static stretching, as I mentioned, I'm not a fan of static stretching ever when the muscles are completely cold. So in other words, if you haven't warmed up at all and you're just holding these, these positions, I don't typically recommend that. Um, and the reason being is that, Stretching and more importantly, increasing range of motion within a given joint or um, within a muscle is going to be accomplished by the way of creating a trusting relationship between your musculature and your central nervous system. And what I mean by that, what I mean by that is your body is constantly protecting you from injury. So if you think about it. When people tear a muscle, it's often because the muscle was stretched too quickly and too aggressively into a range that it was not prepared to go to. So when you're cold and you're going through static stretching routines, it's there's a high likelihood that your body is going to have an equal and opposite reaction to the stretching, which is often why if you guys have knee pain, back pain, shoulder pain, what have you, And then you're like, you know what? I'm going to stretch to make this feel better. And you wake up in the morning, your body's completely cold, and you go through a stretching routine, and afterwards you're like, oh, I feel better. And then what happens by like midday later on in the day, it feels worse. And you're like, I don't understand. Like I keep stretching, and this is not getting any better. And this is why I don't like recommending stretching when your musculature is cold. It's because the body is going to have this defense mechanism to want to put everything back to the way that it was, because you're stretching these muscles past the point that they are comfortable going and they're going to want to retighten, right? And go back to their initial state, which is why people often have back pain, stretch it, it gets better, it gets worse. Back pain, stretch it, it gets better, it gets worse. And they get into these like cyclical, can't get out of type of problems. Um, So in terms of stretching beforehand, if you are going to stretch before exercise, A, make sure you did some form of uh, monostructural kind of like general aesthetics um, or uh, like just getting the body, uh, like anaesthetics, aesthetics, like getting the body moving, right? And then calisthenics, I don't know why that word was escaping me. So just getting the blood flowing, getting the body moving, and then you can incorporate some static stretching with the big and of being you incorporate something that is active at that range. So a good example that I gave was like stretching the calves, holding a squat, right? Um, stretching the hamstrings, holding a good morning position or doing uh, Romanian deadlifts with like dumbbells or something that puts that tissue through range actively. After workouts. There's a lot of debate about this, and it's something that I have gone back and forth on for for quite some time. If your body is very warm, you just got done training, um, I do think that there is a benefit long-term in incorporating some form of stretching, especially in areas that you know that you happen to feel tight. Um, Now, there's a lot to be said about what feeling tight actually means. A lot of times it means that you are weak in a particular area. But um, if you do feel that way, incorporating some sort of low-intensity, long-duration stretch may not be a bad idea. Now, the same is true for the cool-down as it is for the warm-up. In that the more active a stretch is, in other words, if you are holding a position that requires other musculature in your body to facilitate it. A good example of this would be like holding a deep lunge. You're very active. You might be getting a stretch out of your hip flexor, but it's not a passive stretch. Your knees not on the ground and you're not just like leaning forward and leaning your back back and having this like really really, you know, extreme stretch out of the hip flexor. You're holding this position by the way of putting your body into these kind of like isometric holding positions where it just so happens to be stretching a particular muscle or muscle group. I find that people get the greatest benefit out of doing that or coinciding that with passive stretching. And again, the reason is is because you're creating a trusting relationship with your body that you can hold that end range under tension and not get hurt because that's what your body wants to know, right? When you feel tight or when something feels like, when you're lacking mobility in a certain joint, that's what needs to happen in order for your body long-term to be able to access that range under load. So a good kind of like, for instance here is, if you stretch out your quads all the time, and then when you go to squatting, you squat to parallel, you're not putting that tissue that you just stretched through its full range. So the likelihood that you're actually going to, your body's going to make physiological change long term to that tissue is slim, which is why the pairing of these two things becomes paramount. All right. What's the biggest mistake people make at the gym? I think it falls into two buckets. Um, I think the first one is that a lot of people don't know what they're doing. So this is the difference, the key difference between working out and training. Working out is you going to the gym and just like doing whatever you feel like or what you saw on the internet that day or what some friend sent you or what you saw in a magazine if you were <laughs> in the 90s. Um, training is creating a plan. It's understanding what exercises I'm doing, why I'm doing them, and how they're going to progress over time, right? And then when to know to introduce new exercises. One of the biggest mistakes people make is not knowing what it is that they're going to do, and therefore not being able to be definitive in what success looks like. So, If you have a training plan, you can define through measurables, right? Whether it be strength, cardiovascular output, you know, or some sort of performance metric. I want to run a mile in under eight minutes. Um, I want to squat 200 pounds. Um, I want to be able to do 50 sit ups in a row without stopping. Whatever it is, training is what allows you to have those performance-based markers uh, at the end of the road to try to achieve, right? And this is how you can work on progressing towards something that you actually want rather than just kind of aimlessly moving around in the gym and then getting frustrated when it doesn't work out. And then to kind of piggyback onto that, the second piece is that people generally overestimate what they're gonna do in 30 to 60 days and underestimate what they can do in a year. And the same would be true if you extend that time horizon. Most people overestimate what they can do in a year, and underestimate what they can do in five, and and so on and so forth, it keeps going, right? So, when it comes to progress in the gym, you're going to feel, I don't wanna get into this too much because it's gonna be another question, but, um, whatever. Yeah. So the second mistake is going to be not having a plan and expecting too much too soon. Right. That's, those are going to be the biggest ones. Now, this is a great segue into the next question, which is why I didn't want to go too far into that, which is how long should it take to see the results from working out? The first thing you're going to notice is going to be subjective change right, you're going to have less tension in terms of the motivation to want to go to the gym. Now, it's not to say that this doesn't, you know, ebb and flow throughout time, but generally speaking, especially when you first start out, getting to the gym, there's a lot of tension, right? It's awkward. Everything that you're being introduced to is new and novel to you. Your soreness is going to be higher than usual. You're probably going to deal with a little more hiccups than you, you typically will once you've kind of like gotten into a groove. And what I mean by hiccups is, oh, I have this like weird thing in my foot now or my shoulder's feeling a little bit off, right? New range of motion can often be uncomfortable range of motion. And when a gym makes you do things that you haven't done in a long time, there's going to be a level of discomfort that comes about. So getting over that hurdle sometimes can mentally be frustrating and tough, um, which is why the guidance of a coach is really, really important. A, to make sure that you don't overdo anything and, and have those small things turn to big things. And so that they can kind of help bridge the gap and be there to kind of keep you motivated and driven to want to keep going. Um, and circumvent some of the problems that are going to, um, to come up. Um, now, once you kind of get through that, you're going to experience things like better energy, better sleep. Better fullness and hunger cues. I cannot tell you how many people that start at the gym are like, all of a sudden, like, I want to start eating vegetables. And I'm like, right, because your body is now screaming at you that it needs the micronutrients from some of these, these options that before you would have turned away. When people first start training, um, they start to get more comfortable in this desire to want to go to the gym. Right. So this is the first transformation we see with people. And it generally happens with I would say in the first thirty to sixty days is people go, Wow, like I really, really miss sweating. So like if you miss a day at the gym, you're like, damn, like I I, that euphoric feeling I get, right? And all of the, the hormones that get released and the endorphins that get released that come by the way of training on a regular basis, you start to become addicted to in a very positive way. In terms of the actual physical results, you'll see weight move on the scale at a faster rate than you will likely see change in your body. Now, interestingly, if you haven't exercised before and you start exercising, you often see a bump in the scale. And this is something that we talked about, the coaches being there to help circumvent some of these issues that come about. This is one that we commonly see. When you start training, especially strength training, your body's going to retain more water, and you want it to, because that is what's going to facilitate your recovery and adaptation that's going to allow you to see progress over time. But for people that have some sort of, they have a bad emotional relationship with the scale, sometimes this can be daunting, and it's, it's something that a coach <clears throat> can be really helpful in talking you off the ledge, because a lot of times this is where if people were training on their own... They would, um, they would, they would resolve to like crash dieting or stopping strength training because they think they're getting bulky, or increasing their cardio because they think that's going to just all of a sudden like bring the scale back down. And the reality is, this is a very natural thing that happens. People get into the gym, they start working out, and they see a, sli- a slight uptick on the scale. You have to understand that unless. You have just like decided I'm working out, so I'm just going to like completely um, counteract that by eating pizza for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The likelihood that the weight gain is fat is so incredibly slim that it's almost non-existent, right? It is by the way of the fact that your body is storing more water to facilitate all this adaptation from exercise, And you're probably putting on muscle because your body's rate of adaptation is going to be higher when you first start training than it is when you're one, two, three, four, five years into it. Now, in terms of the scale, as I mentioned, um, you might see a slight uptick and then you're going to start to see the scale moving down if, in fact, your goal is weight loss. So, again, I'm not going to obviously like there's different goals here, right? You have putting muscle on and you have weight loss. By and large, most people that I work with come to us because they want to lose weight, or at least they say, I want to lose weight, which often what they really mean is just recomposition. They want to have less fat and see more muscle. Now, the degree at which they want to see muscle is going to vary person to person um, and is something that people often change their mind on over time. Um, in other words, a lot of people come in being like, I, this is particularly... Uh, this is particularly like uh, in the, the the women camp usually, but it'll be like, I don't want to be bulky, right? And then they start working out and they start losing weight and they don't have the aesthetic they want. And they're like, well, how do I get it? And I'm like, you got to put muscle on. I'm like, okay, cool, let's do it. So it's funny to see the transformation that takes place, um, especially for women in this camp that maybe came up, had an upbringing where uh, you know they were told things like, if you lift weights, you're going to get bulky and those sort of things. And it just takes time to kind of like, rewire them to get them to understand that recomposition requires that you can actually see muscle. And that means you actually have to focus on building some muscle. Now, the degree of that is going to be highly dependent on the goals of the person. The thing I always tell people is that it is, it is way harder to build muscle than you think. So you're not going to just like do a workout and then wake up looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger the next day by accident. It doesn't happen. So, this is something that can be tweaked and worked on with a coach over the over the long haul. It's not something where you're going to make this like terrible mistake in a short, you know, short amount of time and regret it. So, trust your coach, talk to them about you what you want and constantly refine your goals and what it is that you want to get out of your training program. So, the scale starts to move. Now, if that's up because you're trying to gain muscle, or that's down because you're trying to lose fat, my general rule is that you're looking at like with losing fat half a pound to a pound of body weight per week. Anything in addition to that, unless you're coming from a place where you're severely severely obese, is going to start chopping away at some of this hard earned muscle that you're putting in. Um, so you're not just losing fat, you're losing muscle. Now, when you lose weight, you are losing some muscle, but you can reduce the amount you're losing by ensuring that your protein intake is high enough and that you're maintaining strength training on a regular basis. But if the goal is recomposition, which it is for, I would say, you know, 90% of the people that talk to us about weight loss, you're going to want to do it at a rate that allows you to preserve as much muscle mass as possible. Now, oftentimes, this can be frustrating for people because, We're in this, a lot of people get stuck into a mindset of instant gratification when it comes to the gym, which is why there's so many people that have bounced from one program to the next and not only not seen success, but gained weight in between them. You need to find training partners, a gym, a coach, or a combination thereof that is going to help you commit to sticking with this long-term because that is the only way that you're ever going to achieve the goals that you want and sustain them forever. Right. I truly believe that you should only you should only have to find the right coach or the right program once. In other words, once you get into working with the right person, I think you get fit and you just never get unfit. It's when people either don't find a coach or the right coach or try to do it on their own or just use whatever fad is out at that time. And then they they do it until they're sick of it. They're not seeing the results they want in a short amount of time because they set unrealistic expectations. They get frustrated and they leave, gain weight, and then they find something new. I think you should only have to get fit once. So if you find the right coach and they're helping you progress and getting you to where you want, stick with it. Because there's a reason why When you look at someone that's fit and you're like, I want to look like that. If you ask them, how long have you been doing this? No one's going to be like three months. It's always years, if not decades. And while this can be frustrating to hear for somebody that doesn't make fitness part of their lifestyle now, I promise you that it will severely increase or improve your quality of life if you do find yourself... 5 years from now having sustained your exercise regimen because you found the right people to support you and be around you. Body composition changes I feel really start to take place 90 days and beyond. Now we talk, I talked a little bit a little bit about setting realistic expectations. I don't mean you're going to go from 20% body fat to 5% body fat in 90 days. What I do mean is that the amount of body fat that you will lose, and the amount of muscle that you will see as part of this goal of recomposition will be noticeable within a 90-day window. Now, generally, I find that it's noticeable by the people around you faster than it's noticeable by you. And this is just, people are always going to be their own worst critic, right? You also see yourself naked in the mirror right, every single day. So you're not going to see the changes as fast as others do. But what I do find also is that other people seeing the changes, your coach, your peers at the gym, your coworkers, people in your family, can be a major morale boost to help propel you to continue to do it. So while the results may be coming on slower than you want, by the nature of people starting to tell you, you look amazing. What are you doing? Your arms look great right now. I can't believe how much you know your legs have gotten stronger and more defined over the last 90 days. Those things are so incredibly helpful and feel so great when you've been putting everything you have in and you personally don't feel like you are, in quotes, seeing the results as, as fast as you would have liked. Now, real results happen between years one and five, right? And I know that's a big range, but if you're a year in, and you've been consistent, working with the same coach, developing ninety-day sprint plans where you're coming up with goals, you know, creating measurements to be able to achieve, breaking past those, and continuing. Once you're at that point, this is where it's no longer this, um, this huge concerted effort to force yourself to go into the gym. It's part of who you are, right? It's part of your identity, and when that happens. All of the little things generally come with it too, meaning when you start to check off wins, you start looking for other boxes to check, and when you're starting to see success by the way of working with your coach, being consistent with strength training, you you go, okay, well, what if I dialed in my nutrition? Okay, well, what if I started to work on my daily step count? What if I started to optimize my sleep? What if I started to reduce my stress? You start adding all these things in and all of a sudden they compound on one another. right? So we check the very big boxes, the high leverage uh, type of uh, activities or things that we find move the needle the fastest with clients. And then as we check those boxes, it's like, okay, well, where else can we optimize in your life? And that's why I say like a year plus in, once you're fully acclimated, once this is is no longer uh, a huge effort and it's a routine, that's where you really start to see the results compound on themselves. And the best part is, this is also when you stop obsessing about them. So people that have been with me for three years, they're not spending every day staring at the scale, stressing that it went up by half a pound, right? They're not staring in the mirror, getting obsessed about why they can see four abs and not six. It's because they have answers to these things. So if they want to make change to their fitness, to their nutrition in a way to focus on some very specific goal, they already have developed the base necessary to where I don't have to worry about the big things falling to the wayside. So for instance, at this point, if someone's like, I really want to focus on leaning out to the point I have a six pack, I don't have to worry that they're going to just like all of a sudden start sleeping four hours a night, right? Or... Uh, stop coming to the gym because uh, work picked up a little bit. They already have the base. The routine is in place. And now we can start getting into some of these higher order goals. And we talked about mistakes earlier. One of them is aiming for higher order goals before building the base, right? We always say that the pyramid can only be as tall as its base. And the base is the things that I just talked about, right? Building the routine getting involved with people that are a good support system, uh, making the good things in your life a habit as far as your nutrition, sleep, protein intake, and regular strength training and cardiovascular exercise. And then you can start getting into the fun stuff. I'm not even going to cover the last one because I think we covered it and it's been over an hour. The last one is what is the best way to lose weight and get in shape? And I know we checked that box, so... Cool. Well, this was fun. Um, This would have been a little bit different had I taken the time and really tried to bullet point this one out. But I'm really glad that I went off the cuff because this is the same way that I would have a conversation if I was in our consult room and a potential client came in and asked me some of these questions. This is how I would answer them. So I really hope this was helpful. Um, I'm excited to do more of these and I'm excited to continue to bring on Awesome and amazing guests. I'll see you guys next time. If you feel like the gym is one big confusing and intimidating playground, a personalized coach from Hardbat Athletics can work with you remotely to help match your goals to an actionable plan. You'll get workout videos and descriptions, and have access to coaching calls to make adjustments when you need them. Let us take the guesswork out of your fitness and nutrition. Visit www.hardbatathletics.com to chat with a coach today.